Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. say this word but yeah, you know, what, uh, i'm a bad motherfucker just leave me alone that, that's the message if you grow plants it's great to talk to your plants mm, yeah it gets a little weird when your plants start talking back to you <laughs> more often the message is come closer let's form a symbiosis let's form a collaboration for mutual benefit What's up, folks? Wow. What an amazing interview with the legend, Dr. Dennis McKenna. You know, we get into some really amazing topics and some necessary things in this conversation from the global ecosystem and how we're affecting it and down to the base level of how psilocybin interacts with the brain. We talk about the FDA studies that are occurring with psilocybin research. So you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to get to our members area, thehumanxp.com slash members. Sign up today so that you can hear all of our members only content. Thank you guys so much for listening. You are listening to The Human Experience, and our very honored guest for today is Dr. Dennis McKenna. Dennis, my good sir, thank you so much for being here. It's, it's so great to have you back on the show again. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So, Dennis, we're doing this thing together, which is completely new to the show. I'm calling it A Drink with Dr. Dennis McKenna. And I mean, I don't even drink rarely, very rarely drink. In front of me is a beer, a German beer. I won't drop the name just because. I'm going to open it now, and if you could just do the same on your end. Already open. <laughs> it's already open. Okay. And... Been working on it for a while here. <laughs> <laughs> to get the mood, you understand. <laughs> I completely understand. Okay, let's dive in to, I want to talk about plants and how they affect our lives. There was a talk that you did called waking up the monkeys plant teachers and the rediscovery of nature where you outlined the fascinating interplay and similarities between plants and our own development as a species what are plant messenger molecules and in what ways do they share function and possible purpose with our own brains neurotransmitters okay so plants I say in that talk, and I say many places, plants substitute biosynthesis for behavior. And they can do that because they're great chemists and because they've mastered this little neat trick called photosynthesis, which is the ability to use sunlight to convert carbon dioxide and water, very simple precursors, into complex organic molecules. And this is the mechanism by which energy is 
brought into the biosphere from the sun and bound in, into the biosphere in a useful way. It's essentially what runs the whole engine of Gaia, the engine of the biosphere. You can think of the planetary ecosystem itself as an organism. And photosynthesis is the key that sustains life on Earth. But it doesn't stop there because plants are able to make many molecules that are not necessarily universally required by all living things because they don't occur in all living things. Mm. But they are useful for the plant. They're basically the language of plants. Plants substitute biosynthesis for behavior. Mm -hmm. And they use these messenger molecules, which we call secondary compounds, as a way to interface with everything in their environment. Other plants, fungi and bacteria, the soil, other animals, things that might want to eat them, things, and that would include us, right? Insects, the whole chemically mediated co-evolution between plants and insects is highly complex, especially for flowering plants. So chemistry is the language of plants, and everything that the plants deal with in their environment is a reflection of symbiosis mm -hmm. and co-evolution, this close relationship between different organisms, usually for mutual benefit. We all come from the same evolutionary precursors, right? We are our ancestry and plants' ancestry. Everything else on Earth goes way, way back to some, it's called the LUCA, the likely universal common ancestor. Hmm. And that's some billions of years in the past. In fact, there's just an article out today that they pushed the probable origins of life back to 3.75 billion years. They're always changing that date. They keep well, they're it. always changing it because they're finding new new information, and yeah. and it's always it's always being pushed back, right? Yeah. But when it comes to the relationship between us, we're the problematic primates, you know. If you've seen, and we have these big hypertrophy brains that run on neurotransmitters. Those are messenger molecules in our brains, and they resemble, in fact, because they evolved from messenger molecules in plants. So these neurotransmitter-like compounds in plants work on the ecosystem level, but we've taken those things and we actually take them in from our diet. We adapt them to our own internal signal transduction processes, which we, which we can characterize as neurotransmission. This is a these are all molecularly mediated signal transduction processes. That's what holds biology together. That's what makes organisms work, and that's what makes ecosystems work. And it all goes back to plants, ultimately. So there's a long, drawn-out answer to your very simple <laughs> question. Okay, so through this process of this idea of bringing out uh, symbiosis, what effect does this have on the species that is cohabitating with the plant, and what changes has it caused in humans, particularly with regard to our phenotype adaptation and on the genotypic level? Well, okay, so this symbiotic a signal transduction relationship with plants goes on at every level. It has to do with 
plant's communication with other plants, with fungi, with bacteria, everything that it might encounter in its environment. This is how plants regulate their relations with everything else in the ecosystem. It's how they optimize their relations. But then when it comes to us, it gets a little more interesting because, you know, we have these neurotransmitters that is what makes our brain function. Also, you find similar or even the same molecules in plants because it came out of the same evolutionary precursors. And so the plants, when they want to send a message to us, they can actually do so at the neural cognitive level. Uh, some wag once said, you know, if you grow plants, it's great to talk to your plants. Mm, yeah. It gets a little weird when your plants start talking back to you. <laughs> but that's exactly what is going on in this mm. evolutionary, co-evolutionary relationship. These messenger molecules are trying to send our species a message. And the message has to do with a number of things, primarily symbiosis. You know, these messenger molecules have various functions and they're not strictly separate. They're kind of overlapping. The message can be stay away. You know, mm -hmm. many of these plant compounds are toxic. The message to anything in the environment is stay away from me. I'm toxic. I'm a bad, I don't know if you can say this word, but yeah, you, you know what? <laughs> uh, I'm a bad motherfucker. Just leave me alone. That, that's the message. More often, the message is, come closer. Let's form a symbiosis. Let's form a collaboration for mutual benefit. And in the case of humans, the collaboration is, is something like this. You monkeys take care of me. You cultivate me. You protect me from the vicissitudes of natural selection, nature, red, and tooth and claw. I don't have to compete anymore because you're taking care of me. So for the plant, that's a good deal. Why would we bother? Well, we're getting something from the plant that we value, you know, a medicine, a food, a, a dye. Some, we tend to value plants because of some useful property that they have, and that usually comes down to chemistry in some ways. Mm -hmm. You know, even, for example, the appearance of a plant, the beauty of a flower, something like this, mm -hmm. we're attracted to it. And I don't want to go all reductionist on you, but in fact, that's about pigments, and that's chemistry. Mm -hmm. You know, so plants use chemistry and chemical messengers to form these complex relationships with humans. And a big part of the message is: let's form these alliances, let's form these symbiotic relationships, even to the extent that you have to wonder who is cultivating who here. Mm, interesting. You know, are, interesting. Are the plants carrying out our agenda, or are we carrying out the plants' agenda? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it's a real question. But then other messages, too, come through when you have these psychedelic plants. They're trying to, on some level, I think these plant teachers, you know, this special category of plants mm -hmm. that have these neurotransmitter-like molecules that we consume, for these psychedelic or, you know, these transcendent experiences, in part the message is, for one thing, wake up. This is a big part of the message to the monkeys. Wake up because your 
destabilizing the ecosystem and you're destabilizing the security of life on earth you've got to re-understand your relationship to nature so that's one thing wake up the other thing is once you've woken up you know wise up right understand first of all the limitations of your knowledge remember how little you know right that's a very common message that comes through at least to me in psychedelic experiences remember how little you know there's no room for arrogance here let me slow you down dennis let me just slow you down because you're segueing for me (laughs) that was that's you know that's my next okay i'm gonna i'm moving into psychedelics right now so terence your brother had food of the gods and then you also talk about the psilocybin compound the formation of religions and other frameworks of reality you actually drew some really astute comparisons between religions based around psychedelic or shamanistic practices. Can you, can you talk about that a bit? Well, here's the thing. One of the uh, things that psychedelics can reliably do under the right circumstances is to trigger or generate what we think of as a mystical experience or a transcendent experience. And you can equate that to a religious experience, but it doesn't have to happen within the context of some organized religion. Mm -hmm. It is, in fact, and we're now understanding this, it is, in fact, that something that every person is capable of, and they don't have to be a member of an organized religion, because, in fact, it is built into our neural architecture. It's built into the structure of our brains. And the receptors that psychedelics interact with, it's a particular subtype of serotonin receptors. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter. These psychedelics interact with one of those subtypes called the serotonin 2A receptor. They are all more or less similar in that they can all generate a mystical experience. And it's interesting because You know, we can now actually study mystical experiences from a scientific point of view. You know, these used to be something that people would strive all of their lives to have, and it was rare. We now know, you know, 20, 25 milligrams of psilocybin in the right circumstances can reliably trigger a mystical experience in just about any schmuck. Mm. You know, you don't have to be a saint for this. You don't have to practice you know, asceticism for your whole life to get this. It is something we're capable of. Now, when you have a mystical experience, there are characteristics of it. One of them is called oceanic boundlessness. This idea that we are all one. We're not separate. We're not separate from other people. We're not separate from any other living things. The idea that we're bounded, that we're you know, egos separate from everything else. That's a delusion. That's not really the way it is. So that's one thing. Another thing that comes out of mystical experiences is what some people have called biophilia, which is an innate discovery and love for living things. You know, I mean, it's built into our sensibility. Generally, we have an inbuilt love for life, Mm. for living things, Mm. biophilia. You know, it's the you know, it's the litter of puppies syndrome, right? I mean, what can be cuter, right? But, you know, maybe the uh, nest of tarantulas, not so much, but, you know, there's still a an element of beauty there yeah. and appreciation. And then the other thing is what people call animism is a perception. Animism is the idea that 
essentially everything is intelligent. Everything is conscious in a certain way. Mm. You know, even rocks, even, you know, their intelligence is something that permeates nature. It's not separate from nature. It is nature. And that's the other thing, pantheism, the idea that there's not an external divine entity that created the universe. The universe is the divine entity. The universe is God, if you want to wow. use yeah. a loaded term yeah. like God. Yeah. These are common perceptions of psychedelic experiences, and I would venture to say of the indigenous worldview, which very often are informed by psychedelics. I mean, that strikes me as highly intriguing that these you know, indigenous populations are consuming these plants that elicit these experiences that make them feel more connected to each other, make them feel more connected to living things. That's highly interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Not only is it interesting, but it can even be studied using these substances, you know, because what they do, in some sense, they lower the gating mechanisms. You know, much of what our brain does is filter information out because there's so much coming in and in order to construct the model of reality that we inhabit, you could call it a hallucination if you like, but it's a model of reality. And in order to construct a model that makes sense, it has to filter most of what you're getting out. You know, So neurophysiologists call it sensory gating. Psychedelics can temporarily disable that, and that's very useful. So Dennis, what about what about the opposite? I mean, what if someone ingests a, a psychedelic compound like psilocybin and they have a difficult experience and or like a dark experience or a negative experience? What happens then? I mean, that that is also very likely, right? Well, yes, it does happen. But I think that's a question of your own preparedness and your own expectations. And people say the most difficult experiences are often the most valuable experiences. You know, whether it's a psychedelic or some other life experience, if it challenges you, that's where the opportunity to learn opens up and really benefit from that. If your experiences are always about, you know, happy hippies and unicorns and rainbows and fuzzy bunnies, mm. That's great, but you're not necessarily going to learn a whole lot from that. You will enjoy it, but will you learn? So the challenging experiences are actually the most useful. And that's where preparedness and, and these key variables that we call set and setting mm -hmm. come yeah. in. Sure. Right? You want to optimize your setting. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? You want to have an optimal situation where you're taking these things. Set is more complicated because set is your mindset, and that goes to what your expectations are, what your intentions are, if any, and really your whole life experience it has to do with what you are, what you bring to it. Because this encounter with the plant teacher is a dialogue, you know, and you're having a dialogue with something that is an intelligence, or at least it presents itself as an intelligence, and you're an intelligence too. So you have two minds that are somehow communicating with each other, not necessarily in language, right? I find that 
when I have a major life issue or problem, there's a few ayahuasca sessions that I had where there was something deeply traumatic going on in my life with uh, some family-related stuff. I was at this tipping point where if the plant pushed me even a little bit into this sort of dark realm, it would have broken my psyche. And I mean, thankfully that didn't happen, but I, I find that when I'm having life problems, I tend to kind of avoid using these compounds. And I'm more keen on let's have a good time with it and learn as much as we can from it when things are going well. I mean, I know yeah. that, that there are some people who kind of go towards microdosing when you're talking about LSD to solve issues, to solve complex problems. I think there's a sort of renaissance happening with the usage of psychedelics. It's really intriguing. I mean, there's, there's so much happening in the world of the regulations and the FDA studies and what you guys are doing at the Hefter Institute, what MAPS is doing. But back to what we were talking about, do you think that plants are trying to give us a warning? Is that communication happening to help us avert some sort of massive disaster that's happening on this planet? Well, yes, I, I do believe this. I think exactly that's what's happening. This is why something like ayahuasca in the last 10 years, 20 years, has suddenly gone from something that was in the Amazon. Nobody, not that many people knew about it or cared or even had any idea what this was. Suddenly, it's gone onto the global stage. It's like it's almost like the plant teachers are trying to get us to wake up to the environmental disasters that we're facing because of our unconsciousness, right? Because of our separation from nature and our failure to understand that we are destabilizing these homeostatic mechanisms, again, signal transduction. We're destabilizing these things and we're approaching a point where they can't be reversed. You know, the planet tends to go to homeostasis like everything else. It strives for equilibrium. Mm -hmm. We're upsetting those mechanisms in serious ways. And at a certain point, we reach a tipping point where we will find that they cannot be reversed. I mean, the, the planet as a whole and life as a whole is tremendously resilient, but there is a limit to this. Never before in evolution has a species been able to manipulate planetary processes through our technologies to the point where these systems are seriously threatened. Our impact on the ecology has always been local mm. up to now, but, mm -hmm. but now it's not. It's global. So we have to get very smart about how we deploy these technologies. Often I say in my lectures, we're extremely clever. There's no doubt about that. What we're not is wise. Mm -hmm. We have to bring our wisdom and our cleverness into harmony with each other so that, yes, we can manipulate all of these technologies that are potentially very dangerous. We have to be smart enough to use them wisely and with clarity and for beneficial purposes. This is one of the main lessons that I think the plant teachers are transmitting to us. You know, and they're getting increasingly hysterical, right? Because we're not listening. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and so people are going, people go to South America or wherever and they take ayahuasca. And many, many people come back with this sort of renewed 
perspective on all this yeah. and literally a wake-up call. I don't remember a time where I was actually more scared for the planet and humanity than now. The propaganda on TV and mainstream media is just so subversive that I, I can't even turn my TV on anymore without hearing some mind-numbing thing. Mm -hmm. It really makes me wonder where we're going to be in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And obviously, you know, yes. like if we're harming the planet in the way that we are and no one is paying attention, no one is, you know, addressing this issue, where, where are we going to live? Well, I mean, we haven't done anything for our generation. I mean, what have we invented? The internet? I mean, that's the only notable thing that I can think of that we've done. Well, but that's a huge thing. That's a huge thing, Xavier, because essentially we're exteriorizing our nervous system onto global scale, right? That is what the internet is at some level. It's the human nervous system that now enshrouds the globe in the same way that, you know, uh, geologists talk about different spheres, right? You talk about the geosphere, the hydrosphere. The atmosphere, these are all things that enshroud the planet. Well, now we have to talk about the neurosphere or the, the cybersphere, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. And what's different about that is it's a human invention. It's not something that evolved in the structure of the planet. It came from us. But then, of course, we also came from nature. But I hear you. I you know, I am worried about this. Uh, you know, I am very dismayed with the political yeah. situation. Yeah. And I just have come to the point where I think that politics is broken. You know, it's not working anymore. I'm very dismayed with the, uh, with the policies of the new administration. But it's, it was headed in the wrong direction to begin with. And it was like, you know, these people don't get it. They are busily dismantling the pathetic steps that we have taken over the last yeah. 10 or 20 years to restore things. Now they're busy reversing all those policies because they don't realize that these things have consequences because the ecosystem works on a longer time scale than we do. I mean, the Trump administration, for example, is not looking past the next four years, you know, mm -hmm. and hopefully that'll be the longest that they have. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, but we have to start planning in terms of, the, as you say, the next 20 years, 50 years, 500 years. And the sad thing is, we're not doing it. You know, the, the technology is there. The technology is being invented every day. And I was just reading this article on Elon Musk and his solar energy proposition that basically a roof of these solar panels would cost less than a regular roof. So we have the technology. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a big enough like wake-up call. I don't think your average human being is scared enough yet. And hopefully it's not too late. How scared do you have to be, you know, in order to wake up? I mean, the Congress, they'll, they'll be standing up to their waist in water before they're going to wake up, you know, because they are deliberately denied. They don't like what science tells them, so their reaction is to, well, let's just be a, a denier. This is not a solution. This is idiocy. Facts don't lie. You know, science is about collecting facts. And I don't care what the administration is, there aren't alternative facts. You know, there are facts. 
and then everything else is either opinions or lies. And they're deeply into lies and not so much into accepting facts. So this is what dismays me about the impotence, in a sense, of political institutions to respond to this, which is why I believe plant teachers really are the solution, because they're catalysts for global consciousness change. I mean, people say, well, what do you do? What do I do? I talk about plant teachers, <laughs> and I, I try to teach people, you know, and create opportunities for people to have those encounters and learn from them, facilitate this symbiosis, basically. And so part of the solution, I think, is to be a plant person, you know, grow plants, trade plants, people uh, teach people how to use them, you know, propagate this message. It seems like not very much, but what's one person to do? So this is what I do. I talk about yeah. it. You remember that movie uh, Waterworld, where dirt was like the new gold? I mean, hopefully we don't. Hopefully we don't get to that yeah. point. Yes. where you know, dirt and plastic yeah. are are the new gold. Okay, Dennis. So we we went on on that tangent, but I I mean I think it's important to discuss this stuff and create awareness about it because this is our home. I, I think we have to be aware and yeah. conscious. And if you're not thinking about this, where you're at least recycling, then you're not doing anything good for the planet that we live on. I wanted to talk about the FDA approvals for psilocybin treatment of anxiety, depression in cancer patients. I think the USONA Institute is in phase three yes. studies. What does a phase three study entail? What does that mean? The approval of any new drug doesn't have to be psychedelic, any new drug. If you want to get it approved in the U.S. for clinical use, you have to go through three phases. Phase one is basically a safety study. You know, you're not even asking if it's efficacious. You're just saying, is it safe? That's usually done with a fairly small number of subjects, but it's a highly structured study. Then if it passes muster on phase one, then you do phase two. Slightly larger group of subjects, and you look at a specific therapeutic target. Does it work for depression? Does it work for PTSD? If it passes muster on phase two, you can say, okay, it's safe to a degree. It's, it's efficacious for whatever your therapeutic goal is. Then you get to phase three, much more expensive. You have to do thousands of subjects. You have to do it in several different centers, usually these are universities or clinics, and it is basically a phase two on steroids, you know, where you're assessing the, the drug for efficacy in a very large group. You can show it works, you can show it safe, and you can show it safe for a large sample. Once you pass phase three, then the FDA, you know, will usually approve the drug as a hmm. prescription drug. So if this study passes the phase three trials, then psilocybin would be removed from the Schedule One classification of the Controlled Substances Act? Yes. Wow. It would have to be. It would be given a different schedule, probably two, and it would then be available uh, for clinical use, clinicians properly qualified for it, probably, you know, doctors, psychiatrists or whatever. They would be able to use it, and it would be available 
through prescription. So that's the goal, and that's what USONA is doing. That's what MAPS is doing with MDMA, same thing. They've just started phase three trials. They got permission from the FDA to do a phase three trial. I think USONA is working on permission to get phase three approval. Once they do, they'll be able to go ahead with that. Now, that's just in the states. That's the framework that we have to work in here. But something like ayahuasca is much more difficult to get through that approval process, right? Well, it's a plant. And not only is it a plant, but it's at least two plants. And the FDA likes molecules. They like synthetic molecules that are, you know, absolutely defined as a medicine. We know exactly what the composition is, what the doses are, and all that. Ayahuasca is a much looser kind of thing. Every formulation is different to a certain extent. And although you can study plants under approved FDA protocols, it's more difficult, you know, because of the inherent variability of plant preparations and the sort of FDA's not being that open to plants, you know, to develop prescription drugs. But I've long been an advocate of, you know, why do we have to necessarily play the FDA game with something like ayahuasca? It doesn't have to be done in this country. It can be done in Peru, for example, where not only is it not illegal, it's been designated a national patrimony. There are good positions in Peru and ayahuasca it comes out of the culture it's a traditional medicine so here's a perfect opportunity to develop something like ayahuasca with all of that indigenous you know history into a clinical medicine that that you can take in peru or other countries that approve ayahuasca there are different ways to go forward you don't have to do a three-phase study only if you choose to do this with the fda What's up, guys? You have been listening to The Human Experience with Dennis McKenna, Dr. Dennis McKenna. If you want to hear the rest of this interview where we get into the the hardcore stuff of everything that we're talking about, and if you want to support our broadcast, what we're doing here, you guys would not believe the amount of overhead that we have to deal with on a monthly basis. So if you want to help support our work, get to thehumanxp.com slash members, become a member, get access to all our members' content. Thank you guys so much for listening.